Welcome to Revolution Sports. This is Tyler Wood. I'm your host. Happy Monday morning to you all. Thank you all for joining us. I know uh, this weekend was very fun and action-packed college football Saturday, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But I want to kind of just recap some of the games that happened over this weekend and um, kind of just go over some of the scores and just all the action that was included had six upsets in the top 25 and had just a lot of good games. Biggest game of the night had Georgia and Clemson, which was a really good defensive battle, especially if you you know if you like watching defensive games. That was definitely one to watch. Um, so just kind of recap a little bit through the top 25. We had uh, Texas and Louisiana. That was a not a good matchup for the most part. Texas in that. New offense of Texas with Steve Sarkeesian running it was able to pretty much get what they wanted, especially with Bijan Robinson being able to run all over the Louisiana defense like we thought might happen with that mediocre rush defense that Louisiana possessed. So that uh, final score was 38-18, to so Texas moves on to 1-0 and in the first game of Steve Sarkeesian's tenure at Texas. Moving down the list had... Um, Penn State versus Wisconsin had Penn State making a goal line stand late in the game, able to get that interception and be able to seal the win so they can start this season off on a on a good foot. Their defense was very impressive in that matchup, just being you know flying all over the field. They had certain key players in that linebacker position that were just always there. Anytime a play was happening, just they were so fast, so intelligent, just uh, really being involved in each and every play. So. They'll start their season off with a with a big win that was needed after the rough season they had last year. Then we move down the list, have Iowa and Indiana, which pretty much went the way I pretty much expected it to go in terms of, I thought maybe Indiana would be able to put up a little bit more points, but Iowa was pretty much able to have their way with Michael Penix Jr. He wasn't able to really get going, especially coming off of that, that ACL injury he had last year. So with uh, – with Iowa, they were able to pretty much move the ball up and down the field, which was a little bit surprising for the most part. But other than that, we really expected them to hold Indiana to a you know a lower score total, which is exactly what happened. So they were able to walk out with a 34-6 victory, start their season off right, which also sets up a major matchup between Iowa and Iowa State next week So in Ames. So definitely looking forward to that matchup. Keep moving on down the list. We have, let's see, we have... Alabama versus Miami. Now, this game was pretty much not what anybody really wanted to see happen. I'm going to kind of go into more depth with this, these two games with the Alabama and Miami one and the the, uh, the Georgia and Clemson ones because I really feel like these two games are really going to set the course of the season with uh, with these teams and also kind of sets the picture for the college football playoff and just kind of the way these, these two games were. Um, looking at it, just Alabama and Miami, it just – like I said, Alabama ended up blowing out Miami 44-13. to Not something that I, even I really expected. I expected Miami to at least have a little bit more offense. I, you know, I expected Bama's defense to be to be good and to produce a, a decent effort. But for me, with with this game, just watching it, watching Miami as a team as a whole, they just did not come to play whatsoever. They had no no passion. They had no drive. They just I mean, it was just to me. It was very disappointing to watch because I came into this expecting a expecting a very good game, and you end up have watching a team get blown out by thirty thirty one points. So, uh, especially with Miami, everyone thought their defense would be a little bit better. But just watching watching the game in general, Bryce Young was able to get whatever he wanted, and obviously that was apparent with his three hundred forty four pass yards and his. Uh, well, I think it was three forty four. Let me pull it up. 
Yep, 344 pass yards and four touchdowns. Able just to get whatever he wanted going 27 to 38. Uh, and just pretty much having whatever play he basically ran was just gave them plenty of yardage on the on the running side of the the rushing side of the ball. They were pretty much able to get what they wanted in that, averaging about four yards a carry and constantly just eating up yardage with that. Receiving, it was interesting to see where everyone knew Mechie was going to be a, a big-time receiver, but Williams was able to step up, had four four receptions for 126 yards, able to able to dominate in that. He, he just had lots of speed and kind of just uh, really puts Alabama back in the realm of, you know, last year with having some of those speedy receivers, so nothing looked any different in that aspect. On the defensive side of Alabama, they looked pretty much, you know, how everyone would expect that they would look like. They came in with – Eight returning starters. Everyone thought they'd be better than last year. They definitely looked apart. But obviously, this is probably going to ruffle some people's feathers when I say this. And for the most part, watching them, they, like I said, they looked good. But to me, I don't think this was much of a test after after the fact, like watching the game afterwards. Because the reason why I say this is just watching Miami's offense. Watching how they played in general and just what they did, there was no sophistication to their plays. I mean, a lot of them you could you knew what they were doing beforehand. They ran so many screens, they ran so many just short passes, and to me it just didn't make any sense. Especially when you have the quarterback that Miami does in Derrick King, you think they'd be they'd have some more quarterback design runs. You think they'd run you know some more read options. You think they'd be doing some just some different stuff to throw this Alabama this Alabama defense off, but they didn't, and it was just kind of very you know. It was very bland in terms of offense, and I was just very disappointed to see that because I figured we'd we'd see we'd see more this year and see the offense open up. But I think I mean some of it can probably be put on Derek King's knee injury that he had. Obviously, you know, not running as much. I mean, that could definitely be the case. But I don't know. I just feel like you would see more being you know all the stops being pulled out to be able to to beat the number one team in the country. You know, you you get ABC. You're on you know midday the midday game spot, you know, you got an opportunity to compete and you just come out here and you just lay an egg. But I guess that's kind of been par for the course for Miami from, you know, last year as well. They played some big name games and, you know, and gave up plenty of yards just like they did in this game. And so it's kind of just kind of wash, rinse, repeat this year, just like last year. So, um, like I said, for Alabama, I thought, you know, it was a good win, obviously sets them up, you know, defending national champs. They get set up, they look, you know, they look the part as defending national champs. They, you know, you can kind of settle some of the concerns people had for their for their offense. But like I said, I think it will still be interesting to see as you as we move forward to with them for games like they got the Florida game coming up in two weeks so against a better defense like that. I think it will be interesting to see how well Bryce Young plays it plays at that point against a team you know that's going to actually challenge and be able to get some pressure on them and be able to just make them actually execute better than what they had to because I mean there was plays I mean I think on three of Bryce Young's touchdowns none of them were contested I guess you said they were he wasn't contested in terms of throwing but also I mean the receivers when they're getting in the in the backfield they're having about a five ten yard cushion between the next you know the next Miami defender so uh it was just very disappointing, especially seeing with Manny Diaz, the head coach there, taking over the defensive coordinator, uh, you know, role also and calling the defensive plays. It's just, I don't know, I was just very disappointed to see Miami in that aspect. I thought they would actually be a lot better than what they were, you know, than what they were. So, I mean, a lot of it can be taken too. you know, week one, you know, work, you know, getting stuff 
just you know executed right. I mean, it could be a lot of that, but I don't know. You just think there'd be more heart, there'd be more, there'd be more willpower that they would put out there, but there was none of that. So uh, it'd definitely be interesting to see, like I said, how Miami performs, but also how Alabama performs moving on to some tougher competition as they get into to SEC play. Um, now for them, college football wise, and talking like me, college football playoff wise, and talking long term. Obviously, they're the number one team in the country. They'll stay the number one team in the country as the rankings come out. And obviously, everyone wants to go ahead and and crown them national champions just watching that one game win at 44-13. to 13. But to me, I'm definitely not ready to do that. Obviously, I'm not discounting anything that Alabama has done in the past. I'm not discounting anything that Nick Saban has done, obviously, because he's the greatest coach in college football history, in my opinion. But watching this, like I said, just watching this game, I was not, I was not as – ready to just crown Alabama like a lot of other teams were. And I know some people are listening to this and they think, oh, you're just biased against Alabama. You know, you like, you know, another SEC team. It has nothing to do with that. I'm just talking straight from when I talk to you, when I talk to you listeners, I'm talking just from a straight standpoint in terms of just how things played out. I do my best to keep my bias from aside, you know, from my revolution sports stuff. So this is just my aspect on it. And like I said, if you disagree with it, that's completely fine. But to me, I just was not satisfied in terms of this game and looking to see more. Now, do I think long-term will Alabama still be great this year? Do I still think they'll make the playoff? Yes, there's uh, that chance is very likely. I just need to see more in terms of their offense and see their defense go up against a prolific offense as well and see, uh, just see how they perform in terms of that before I'm ready to say, uh, they'll win the West or, you know, they'll win the national championship in general. So that'll be interesting to see. But in terms of games that had impacts and, you know, college football playoff implications and the rest of the season, obviously everyone's got to talk about this Georgia and Clemson game and just how big it was, how monumental it was, as everyone knew it was going to be going into this game. Uh, we had two teams that have both been to the playoff over the last couple of years that both teams that are consistently finding themselves in the top five um, you know what they offer they're gonna both offer great defenses and uh, Clemson's been known for their offense over the past couple of years but they lost you know big players like Trevor Trevor Lawrence Travis Etienne I mean when you lose players like that you expect your offense to take a little bit of a dip and I think we all did expect them to, you know, take a little bit of a dip, but I don't think anybody expected them to look as bad as they did last night in terms of in terms of offense. They ended up losing ten to three. Obviously, Georgia coming out on top in a what you would call a very uh, heavy defensive slugfest, and it was very apparent it was just going to be one of those type of low scoring games. I mean, roughly right after the about halfway through the first quarter, everyone, if you were watching, kind of just had that idea that it was just going to be one of those low-scoring affairs that was just going to kind of drag out. So if you didn't like offense, I mean, if you, if you do like offense, this game was not for you. If you like defense, you like hard-hitting, you like old-fashioned football, this was definitely the game for you because I got to say, watching both these defenses, I don't think there's two better defenses in the country than these two teams. So uh, you, I mean, you can see that in the stats. Total yards for Georgia. Georgia was held to 256 yards, but Georgia turned around and held – Clemson to 100 total, 180 total yards and to two yards rushing. Um, that is extremely, extremely impressive in terms of holding a team to just two yards rushing, especially a team that's been known to have a rushing attack. But like I said, that was also with a with a former player in Travis Etienne, who's now playing, you know, who's now playing pro. So uh, 
very, very defensive-minded teams, and that was very apparent. But in terms of talking about these defenses, like I said, two of the I think the two best in the country. But I was just so surprised how how well like they were they were just ready for game one, like week one of college football. Most teams they take a little while to settle in. You know, see a first couple couple drives they go and. They set. They take a little while to settle in, or you know, actually to execute. But it just did not seem that way at all. It seemed both teams were just ready right off the bat, just to go right at each other. Because no one really. I mean, Georgia moved the ball a little bit to start the game, but Clemson just never really even got got to move the ball at all until roughly until when there was a the punt where Georgia was um, Georgia not Georgia Clemson was punting the ball ended up hitting the. Ended up hitting the Georgia player, and Clemson was able to recover. Ended up kind of giving them some good field position about middle of the field. That was probably their best starting field position they had. Now, they weren't able to capitalize off of it because of Georgia's defense, but that was just the type of game it was. No one was really moving. No one was really advancing the ball. And, I mean, the only touchdown that was actually scored in this whole entire game was a pick six where Georgia intercepted the ball off of DJ Uangale's pass and was able to return it for 70 73 yards to the house so that was midway through the second quarter right you know by a couple, about four or five minutes before halftime and it kind of just set the momentum towards Georgia for the rest of the you know that first half into the about midway through the third quarter and it kind of just you could kind of tell it was just gonna be one of those slow dragon defensive games and it was exactly that and in terms of how it went the rest of the game is you know you get to the about middle end of the third quarter and it looked like Clemson was actually starting to be able to get some get some momentum in terms of offense. They were able to move the ball a little bit better in terms of uh, passing the ball. They weren't able to get anything going rushing. You have 23 attempts and you only have you know 23 attempts rushing and have two yards rushing. Period. That's just absolutely crazy and shows just how good of a job Kirby Smart continues to do with his defense and continues to improve his defense year over year. I mean, we knew they were good against the rush last year, but they were even better this year. And especially at at this point of the season, it is, like I said, first game of the year against this type of team, number three team in the country, just to be able to do that, it was absolutely incredible to see. But going back to Clemson's offense, like I said, they were finally able to get some get some movement in the passing game, get get up and down the field a little bit more. But it just seemed like every time Clemson would get to about the 50-yard line or actually get into Georgia territory, Georgia would just shut them down, be able to get into that backfield, be able to sack uh, Uangale, um multiple times. They got in there and sacked them seven times this whole game. Now, some of that is going to give credit to Georgia in terms of actually being able to move that offensive line and being able to get into that backfield. But I also think in part of that, some of that blame's got to go to Uangale in terms of how he would just, how he was that game. I think he was kind of shocked in two ways because when you look at it, he was last year he started two games in, in place of Trevor Lawrence when Trevor Lawrence was out because of COVID protocols. And he shined. He had 430 yards passing one game. He had three 340-something in another game. Everybody thought that was the type of performance we were going to see, and he was going to be a Heisman candidate, and he still he still can be. But I think when you come into last year, you didn't have many fans in the stadium. You were at limited capacities, and then you walk into Charlotte, North Carolina, first game of the season. It's number five. I mean, number three versus number five, and you walk in there. You're the starter. You got all the pressure on you to perform. You got all the pressure on you to lead this team back to the college football playoff after after you're taking over the spotlight from. Trevor Lawrence, and 
you're the man and expected to do this finally. And it's not like last year where you were just coming in to just just help the team as you could with no expectations. But it's different, and I think that has some effect. But I also think it got even worse for him when he got in the game and he looked at this type of defense and he's sitting here like, oh crap, this is this defense is getting him, you know, getting in the backfield and in my face every single time I'm dropping back to throw the ball, and. Like I said, there was about four sacks that Georgia got that was just straight up from Georgia actually getting in the backfield and just moving that offensive line. And they constantly moved the offensive line, but actually just being there to actually sack him was, you know, that was Georgia's credit. But about three of them was him just taking too much time, whether that was throwing the ball away, whether that was just him just sitting in the pocket and not getting out of it, being you know, rolling out trying to create something. Um, he just held the ball too long. And I think a lot of it, too, he was staring down his receiver trying to get trying to get, you know, get the ball to a single receiver, whether that was Justin Ross or, you know, whoever else he had out there. But he would just stare him down. And I think that's exactly what happened in that 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 pick that turned the game and gave Georgia the, you know, made the difference in that game. He stared down his receiver. Yeah, the receiver ran a wrong route. But staring down that receiver the whole time, it allowed Georgia in that soft, that soft zone to be able to bait him into throwing that and Georgia was able to jump that pit, you know, jump that pass and was able to take it to the house. And that's the difference between the game. So, yeah, I mean, it, I think it was, like I said, some, a lot of credit, most of the credit's got to go to Georgia's defense. But on the other front of, I think a lot of it was just him being in that position for the first time. He was not quite as ready as everyone thought he was going to be. And, I think that's part of the problem. We put so much expectations on all these players in college, and we forget that most of these guys are 18, 19 years old just coming out of high school and, or you know, just having their first time being in that spotlight. And we expect that so much out of them. We expect them to perform. And when they don't, you know, everyone's ready to beat up on them. So, and I don't think that should be the case with him. I think Uangale, I think he's going to be ready for the rest of the season. I think um, – in terms of how he's going to perform, I think his stats would be fine. And I, like I said, he's only, he's only, I think he's a sophomore. And at that case, he's got plenty of years of eligibility. I think he's going to be a high draft pick here in a couple of years. I mean, you can see with any quarterback that Dabo Sweeney's had there at Clemson over the last couple of years. I mean, between Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, uh, you they're obviously pro level quarterbacks, and he's going to be able to develop you Ungulate just the same way. Like I said, so you got to give credit to Georgia's defense mostly, but you got to look at that aspect as well. And going back to in terms of how the rest of the game played out, they were able to get the ball moving a little bit more. But then you come into the, you come into that, that, that fourth quarter, and Clemson's finally able to get on the board, finally with a field goal. But I mean, they're sitting there right, you know, first and goal, and they go straight, three straight plays. It's fourth and goal, and they have to, you know, kick a field goal. That's definitely credit to Georgia's defense and how they covered that whole entire goal line stand. So. That was, uh, like I said, just a lot of credit to Georgia's defense. But just how stuff was, you could tell Clemson was just shocked at how Georgia was able to move their line and was able just to get into their backfield. And so they were able to kick the field goal. They go down. Georgia goes three and out with some very, very conservative, dumb play calling in terms of offense like we had seen for a good portion of the night. And then... You go down, then Clemson gets the ball. They're able to drive the field a little bit. Georgia finally makes a stand about just a little bit past the 50-yard line, and Clemson decides to go for it on fourth and fourth and five. They're trying to get you know get the first down and keep this drive moving because, like I said, at this point they had built that momentum, and you could tell Dabo Sweeney had you know 
had been able to notice that, so they decided to go for it. And Georgia was able to get some pressure on Uangale once again. He was he threw an incomplete pass, and Georgia was able to take over and was able to run the clock out um, with the, with there. I think what was really impressive, especially about that last part of the game, Georgia had struggled on offense, just like both teams struggled on offense the whole entire game. But when it really mattered, when it was time for them to be able to move the ball and be able to actually put a game away, they were able to. And so that was really good to see in terms of if you're a Georgia fan, that's something you want to see. You want to be able to see them run the ball down someone's throat and be able to close the game out just like that and be able to run the clock. And they executed perfectly down the, down the stretch. Now, I talked a little bit a little bit about Clemson's offense and what I expect for them down the road. Now, in terms of Georgia's offense, I'm going to be bluntly bluntly honest. One, I thought it obviously the offensive performance was was bad. I don't think it's as bad as some people are trying to make it out to be because like I said this Clemson defense is top 2 defense in the country. So, you can't you got to give Clemson's defense a lot of credit as well cuz they did a very good job blanking the receivers and making it tough for these receivers to get open. And I thought it was interesting how they played, too, for the most part. You see Clemson, they're very aggressive. They play lots of man defense. They're ready to attack you. They're ready to get after you. Now, here, it, they trusted their line, the guys they had up on the line, and allowed Georgia to try to run the ball against those guys. And they did a good job, for the most part, keeping Georgia in check until Georgia finally got was able to get downhill and later in the game. But they dropped back in that soft zone and just – made JT Daniels, you know, they just, he was only able to take what they gave him. And that's what happened for the most of the night. JT Daniels, I think it was his first, like, 10 passes were all five yards or less, which is crazy because everyone had the expectations he was going to be able to light it up like he did last year. And that just wasn't the case against this. So I think a lot of the the problems with both offenses I think is overblown because I just don't think people are giving these defenses as much credit as they deserve. So I think that's part of it. But I think with Georgia's offense, what got me too was just some of the play play calling and just how it was. I mean, there was times where it was, you know, first down, run up the middle, first down, run up the middle, and then you're, you know, third and long, you're at third and eight, and you're having to sit here and you're having to throw throw a a pass against this Clemson defense. And so all they're giving you is the short – uh, dump off to the wide receiver so you're kind of just stuck there and you only get two or three yards off of it which is exactly what Clemson wants to do and they did pretty well for the most part um, but Georgia I mean he, they got to open it up a little bit and I understand that they're they're short on some of their on some of their players they're missing their top wide receiver in terms of George Pickens they're missing some other players like Dominic Blaylock another wide receiver um, they're they're missing a lot of their offensive talent, and that was obviously seen last night. But I think the play calling still, even while you're missing those guys, has got to be better. Now, good news in terms for Georgia, you don't have another big game really on your schedule until you see Florida or see Auburn and Florida in you know about four or five weeks from now. So you got some time. You got UAB next week. You got um, South Carolina, and then you got. Arkansas, so you got some lower tier, you know, SEC talent, some lower tier talent in general to help give those guys time to recover and be able to get back into the swing of things, get back to their, you know, their normal self and be able to perform at the level they're expected to. So that's good in terms of that, but that play calling still got to be different in terms of while they're out. So you got to finally expand and get some of these other guys ready because, like I said, you I mean you saw some, you saw some talent in terms of what they presented on that side of the ball in terms of uh, uh, just how they played some receivers stepped up that, you, you know, no one thought was going to when that, you know, when it mattered. So 
allow those guys to get some of the reps, open up the offense, and see what they can do um, in, this, in these next couple weeks as you play some of this lower-tier talent and grow that offense because you're going to have to have an offense later on. I know some people were saying, well, as long as your your defense is that good, you won't have to score very many points, and that's true. I feel like that defense is going to be that good and get better all year, even though they even better than they were in this game. But the thing is, though, you still are going to play some teams that are still – you're going to make mistakes as a team. You're going to have slip-ups. You're going to have probably possibly injuries later on in the year. You're still going to have to be able to put points on the board. So that's one thing that Georgia has to has to do, has to work on, has to get better at. So um, in terms of that, I fully expect, to, you know, expect that to happen, especially as they progress and they get these players back. So um, – in terms of the college football playoff implications for this, like I said, it had the biggest implications of any game because if you look at it with Clemson, they, like I said, they made the game close. They still play close. They didn't get blown out, anything like that. They still look good for the most part other than that offense. And with that, I mean, you, some people are saying, oh, they should still be in the playoff playoff mix. I don't know if I necessarily agree yet. Obviously, that's still got to be seen because obviously it's going to come down to what the committee says in the first place, but it'd be interesting just to see how that shakes out for the rest of the season because they don't they don't play anybody else until at the absolute earliest probably the ACC championship game that's going to even be ranked, and that just obviously depends on the you know teams on the other side that when they play Notre Dame if they can beat Notre Dame they'll probably be ranked, but I mean it just you're looking down the list and they don't have anybody, any big standout games and that's really going to propel them into that top four because, I mean, you look at it later on down the list and you have a one-loss, you know, SEC team between Georgia and Alabama, you know, but, you know between uh, Clemson and them, you're going to look at this game as, well, Clemson couldn't really compete against some of the, you know, d- couldn't win the game against some of this top-tier, this top-tier talent. Why should we give them this final spot or give them one of the top four spots? And I think that's why this game was so much more important for Clemson, and it really kind of messes with their, you know, how they, they are in the mix of the playoffs. Because, like I said, there's just nothing there to really propel them in terms of the committee's eyes. I think. Now, for Georgia, they could afford to lose this one. You don't want to because this is the year that everyone is talking about. They've got a shot to win the national championship. So uh, if you were going to do it, if you were going to quiet the naysayers, you were going to you know quiet the critics, this was the game to do it and help you have some major momentum into this season because they're kind of in the same position, I guess you say, for the regular season. Now, Georgia only has one more ranked opponent, and that's Florida later on during the year. And... Georgia's obviously going to be a heavy favorite just in every game they play the rest of this year. So a lot of people are expecting them to go 12-0, and and that's barring any slip-ups that Georgia has because they're very well known to do that against lesser talent. So barring that anything like that happens, Georgia should you know should possibly go 12-0. and So outside, if they did lose that Clemson game, they're 11-1 and the rest of the way. And if they beat whoever's in the SEC championship, more than likely Alabama, at the end of the year, they would be in the playoff anyways. So... Uh, that's why this game wasn't as important to Georgia, but it was huge in terms of building this program's momentum and getting them set up and basically just having that win in their back pocket for when it's time for the college football playoff committee to actually pick games. So, um, like I said, way more important game for Clemson. They lost. I don't see them. I see, I don't see, I see it very hard for them to get back into the mix of things. I'm not saying they're completely out, but I see it very hard for them to get back in the mix of things. Um, unless some of these 
upper team slip up. But like I said, this is this is a you know talking long term future, a long ways away. We still got a lot of season. This was just week one, so just talking in in terms of future perspective, and I expect to talk more about that as weeks go on. Um, but in terms of this, this game was huge for Clemson, and then they ended up not being able to get over the top. But this game was you know not as important for Georgia, but it's terms and huge. It's it's huge in terms of building that momentum for that program and getting them to the level that Kirby Smart wants to, and finally, hopefully, being able to get over that hump eventually and win the win the whole thing as they've been close a couple of times. So, in terms of sports, that's all we're really got, I really got for you today. Not too much has happened in sports terms other than college football and uh, but we'll obviously have more in the coming we got you know football games next week but NFL kicks off next week so that was that so we'll have plenty of sports stuff coming up baseball you know we got playoffs coming up in terms of that in the next coming week so plenty more sports but other than other than college football not too much has gone on so I'm going to go ahead and flip over to the political side of stuff. Now, I don't have much for you in terms of politics. There hasn't been much has happened between now and uh, – maybe between Friday and and Monday now. And But so I'm going to kind of just talk about what's going on in terms of – in terms of Afghanistan again. I know I keep bringing that up. And from the, you know, I had talked about that Friday, but I'm bringing it up again here on Monday. And the reason being is because it it's really bothering me in terms of just how this whole thing is handled and how our leaders in America are handling it. I saw this article today from the, I mean, uh, yesterday from the New York Post that was talking about the this California woman that's stuck in Kabul says that the Taliban is actively hunting for Americans in Afghanistan. And then... So you actively have these terrorists are actually actively hunting for Americans to actually execute them because they don't want them there in their country. But then you turn around and you look at the White House Chief of Staff Ronald Klain say that there's a hundred Americans that are still in Afghanistan and that they pretty that the ones that are still there, the hundred to two hundred that are still there, they want to stay. And to me, that just doesn't fly well with me because. Honestly, that's not the case when you got when you're actively being hunted down in another country. Why the heck would you want to be in another country when you're actively being sought out by the terrorists that live there or that have taken over the country? You don't want to be there. It's a lie by this administration. It's one of the countless lies that they continue to push. And uh, especially, of course, there was General Milley just said the other day that they expect full-on civil war to break out there in Afghanistan. Why would anybody who's there and has the opportunity to leave active? I mean, sure, there may be a couple, but I highly doubt it's the full 100 or 200 that's there that actually want to stay. But we're not doing anything to help them out. At this point, the Biden administration and the, just the whole government in general, Democrats in general, they, they're not even talking about this. The mainstream media has flipped this off. They're done talking about it. Their new thing is this whole Texas abortion law and how they plan to fight back against uh, abortion and I mean not fight back against abortion but fight back against these laws that are limiting killing the killing of babies they're more important they're it's more important to them to kill babies than it is to take care of the American citizens that are stuck over in terrorist land and to me I just I that doesn't settle well with me that doesn't that doesn't go over well because like I said it's just one thing after another we keep going with this administration it go more anti-american and <clears throat> And that's just exactly what they want. They want stuff in America to be anti-America. They're trying to reshape America into into being this liberal, dystopian world or country that they 
have this mindset i mean this this mind to build and it all just comes down to the power that they want and to do that they're willing to sacrifice american lives they're willing to change the narrative they're willing to censor they're willing to uh, change the, just the narrative in general. I mean, you saw that with Biden and how he tried to change the narrative with the Afghanistan president, uh, President Ghani, who was there. And they don't care. Everything about this is just trying to get to their ultimate goal, and that's just more power. The more power that they have, the better off they'll be. The longer they'll be able to stay in office, they'll be fine. And, I mean, that's just ultimately what it all boils down to. So, But my line, I mean, obviously – I'm fighting back against that in the first place, but my line, they're way past my line in terms of where I've drawn it, especially now where you have these American citizens, these, these so well, these American citizens that are trapped, but you also had U.S. soldiers that died on top of it due to the incompetence of this administration and just their lack of caring uh, about this situation and just how their mismanagement of it with the situation went. And it's pretty sad to me because, like I said, the mainstream media has stopped talking about this. The Democrats have stopped talking about this. The Biden administration has stopped talking about this because they don't want this failure to continue to be a factor in the 2022 elections because they know campaigns and stuff like that are getting ready to fire up here soon because we're getting closer to the end of 2021, just the last couple months. And they don't want this to be something that drags over to this election. It's just like anything they've done. They – when – Biden was running against was running against Trump. They didn't want any of Biden's past failures, like the the 1994 crime bill, to come up and be part of the election. They tried to censor, they tried to suppress, they tried to change the narrative, and that's what they will continue to do. So, but like I said, my line has been drawn when you have citizens that are trapped that we're leaving over there and just basically saying we don't care about you figure it out on your own but then you have soldiers that are actively giving their lives to protect the freedom of our country and then they're dying because of the mismanagement of a crisis that didn't have to be mismanaged and that could have been handled so much better and another thing that gets me is there was a bill drafted by republicans in congress that said we would like the names of the 13 soldiers that died in afghanistan to be read before uh before their their session that they were having and the Democrats voted it down, wouldn't do it. The, they would not recite their names. But believe. But the thing is, believe me when I say this, they have no problem throwing George Floyd's name out there. And they have no problem throwing Black Lives Matter, other, other people that have been a part of Black Lives Matter's name out there. But they won't say the 13 soldiers in the in the the U.S. the U.S. troops that have died over in Afghanistan. Because if that doesn't tell you what they care about more than anything else, then nothing will. And if that rubs you the wrong way that I just said that, then you're part of the problem, and I have no problem telling you that. Because if you can actively say that you're more concerned with the whole Black Lives Matter and George Floyd situation and support our congressmen and women that are fine supporting that, but you you have no problem with them not saying the 13 names in Congress of the U.S. troops that died, I got nothing for you. This is the wrong podcast for you. I'm just being honest with you. And that's anti-American. That's anti-everything we are here in this country. And I got a major problem with it. So uh, this isn't some situation I'm going to continue to – I mean I'm going to let die down. If there – the more news that comes out about it, I will continue to report on the Afghanistan situation. And that way this isn't something that's forgotten as we move into the the 2022 election cycle because it's coming up real soon. And this isn't something that needs to be – needs to die because they need to be held accountable for it and they need to answer for their failed policies that have led to this so like i said this is something i will continue to talk about something i will continue to fight for and i hope you'll join me with that as we get closer to that
The last thing I want to talk about, though, uh, before we finish up this podcast and wrap it up, not going to uh, go too much longer. Like I said, there's not too much to talk about today in terms of politics, but something else that just happened over the weekend, um, I think Friday to be exact, Democrats are, have now announced they want to pu- push a Roe v. Wade abortion law, actually codify abortion in terms of making it federal law. Like it's just allowed in all 50 states where there's nothing the state, it's not states' rights anymore to change the um, the legislation of how that's, you know, of the time limits of when abortions are legal and when they're not. And obviously this comes comes down to, Everything that happened with Texas banning abortions after the the um, cardiac activity to be detecting, which is roughly around six weeks. So that's what this comes down to, and this is exactly what they want to do. They Biden has talked about doing this. He talked about this when he was running for president about actively codifying it. And to me, this is exactly how they run on anything and we, how they want to do anything because anything that they agree with, they never want to leave it up to states because they hate states' rights. They hate that states can make decisions for themselves. They hate that states can overrule the federal government. So anything that they can codify or make federal law, they'll do it, and they'll do it in a heartbeat, and you're seeing that now with this as well. And it's what this is what bothers me in terms of how they are. There's, like I said, when I talk about anti-American in terms of what we were talking about with the Afghanistan situation, this is anti-American as well because instead of allowing this to be a to be a state's right, they want to make it a federal a federal uh, right to be able to tell you that um, it is absolutely a law that you can go and kill a baby at any point in time whenever you'd like. And this this is just absolutely crazy in terms of this, and they're going to continue to do stuff like this. You're going to see more and more stuff where they go and they try to take uh, issues like this and they try to make it federal law so that way they can't be overruled because the more more power that the federal government has, the less that states have. That means everybody is unified in terms of one law, and then at that point there's no pushback. Um, against what they say. So, like I said, it's all about power. It's all about control. And if they can get, like I said, they can continue to stay in power and continue to grab more federal control, they'll be able to just basically rule over all of us just like they're already trying to do. And that's their problem right now. You have states push back with stuff like this with what Texas is doing. And this is my question. This is kind of the final thought I'm going to leave everybody on with is at what point does this finally boil over into a point where states just say no more we're done and i know you're sitting here thinking and i know i've talked to a lot of people that have said oh tyler you're crazy in terms of of thinking that there's going to be a point where states say no we're no longer going to work with the federal government we're just going to do our own thing but i don't think people realize how close we are to getting to that point where that actually becomes an issue because uh right this second this bill is not going to pass there's going to be a lot of stuff that's still not going to pass because there is still the filibuster in place which requires 60 votes um to be able to pass a bill in the Senate. And you're not going to have that because you're not going to find 10 Republicans that are going to be willing to vote for abortion being federalized in terms of all 50 states. So you're not gonna, you're not going to find that. So the thing is, though, what if next election they do somehow get it and they continue just to push stuff and push stuff in terms of what they want to make federal rights and take away from the state's rights, uh, like they tried to do with the For the People Act where they're trying to turn voting into a federal um, federal legislation in terms instead of state legislation um, in making the laws of that. So that's just another example of what they want to do in terms of uh, making the federal government more power powerful. But at what point do states finally say it's enough? You've seen states sue and sue the federal government, sue the Biden administration in terms of stuff like the 
immigration crisis that's down there at the Mexican border, you've had them fight back in terms of that and actively say, okay, even though you say this, we're done done doing this. But at what point does does do the states have to say, all right, for us to be able to stay a free state and to be able to have the freedom that America stands on, at what point are we done with the federal government? And like I said, I know some people are going to say, that's crazy, that's not going to happen, that's stuff that happened all the way back in the 1860s, but I'm telling you, we're right here at it. And I know some some people that makes uncomfortable. I know that makes some people, uh, you know, they want to live this cushy life, which is, you know, exactly what you know we've all gotten used to because we haven't had any problems over the last you know twenty years in terms of uh, stuff, you know, in terms of like major crisis that's happened. But we're getting to a point where we're at a major crisis in our country in terms of stuff like this happening. Decisions going to have to be made about this. So. Just think about it. At what point is that going to happen? Because I'm telling you, it's not too far off. And what, when it, once that happens, obviously we'll get more in detail to it. But states are not just going to sit by and these states' leaders like Ron and uh, Greg Abbott in Texas. You're not going to have them sit by with stuff like stuff like this happening and just have the federal government run them over. So it's just not going to happen. So um, with that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And um, hope you'll continue to join us as we continue to push out more content and hope you'll share with your friends, share with other people, and we'll hope you'll join us in our next episode this coming Wednesday.